Well, good morning, church. Good morning. There we go. It's good to see each and every one of you. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 14 today. And here in a minute, we'll start with verse 43. So the Gospel of Mark chapter 14, verse 43. And as my brother Keith mentioned, in July, uh, we're giving the volunteers and the staff and Kids Quest a break. And so it might be a little noisier than normal if you're visiting. And so we just ask that you show some extra love and grace to families that have their kids in here. And for those of you that have your children present, no, we get it. We've been there. And so just know that this pastor's not worried at all. So enjoy your time. And I pray that each one of you will learn from the word of God. A long time ago, when I had gone through SEAL training, I came to this realization as I went from each coast to different teams and different commands that I was never going to be the fastest or strongest at anything. There was always some teammate of mine that was better than me. And to be honest, maybe as uh, wired as an alpha male, it bothered me, but I did my best to always be, you know, like the top of the pack, but I was never first in anything. And so time went on, and as I got older, I called the detailer up one time, and I was on the other end of this situation, where I, and a detailer in the military is this person you call, and then you hope magically they will distribute the right people to your location. And so I called him up, and I said, how come you keep sending me subpar performers, thinking that he would listen to me and respect my request? And instead, I got blasted. He said, hey, guess what? Everybody wants a superstar, but here's a newsflash, Todd. They're not all superstars, so deal with it. And I was like, okay, there you go. But as I thought about it, really, he was talking about someone like me. I wasn't a superstar either. I was someone who got the job done. But as I got older, I realized the most important quality we were looking for in a teammate was trust. Can I trust this man on the battlefield to watch my back? You see, the performance stuff would sort itself out. We could teach somebody how to shoot, how to climb, and how to jump out of planes and all that other stuff. But can I trust you? And a lot of times, that's not something you can teach. They either are going to show up that way or not. Now, I'd love to tell you that as I cross this over into my personal life, that my wife and kids and even my grandkids were like, oh, this man, he is 100% trustworthy. But I've made mistakes in my own personal life. Like times when I look at my son and I'm like, I am going to be at that ball game. And then guess what? I don't make it to that ball game. To me, that's violating trust. And that's a big deal. Or maybe not making it to that piano recital of a daughter. All those things. But as I was thinking about this issue of trust and studying this passage, I wonder how many of you might identify with me and feel like you don't measure up sometimes. That maybe you've made a few mistakes along the way. And if you have, I want to remind you that you're in good company. Because we're going to read about some men today who all failed our Lord Jesus Christ. When it mattered most in that garden... They all fled and left him alone. And so with that, I want to take you on a journey through this passage. And if you are visiting, we've been on a journey through the Gospel of Mark for a while now. And you can certainly catch back up by going online and watching the sermons. But allow me to do a quick review of the Passion Week of Jesus. Now, that's a fancy church way of saying the last week of Jesus up until the crucifixion. So on Monday... Jesus entered Jerusalem in triumph. The people packed the streets, and they held him as the messianic son of David. They were so excited. And then on Tuesday, Jesus went to the temple and denounced the corruption taking place. They were charging up to 10 times the amount 
for these different animals for sacrifices. So a ton of corruption, and he kicked out the merchants who had turned his father's house into a den of robbers. Then on Wednesday, Jesus returned to the temple, teaching those who gathered, and he denounced the religious elite and the leaders of Israel and preached against uh, everything that really they were covering. And then later that evening, Jesus answered his disciples' questions about his second coming and the end of the age. While this was going on, the religious leaders were growing fearful of Jesus' popularity, and they plotted his destruction. They also knew that he needed to capture him away from the crowds, but the question was, how? To their unexpected relief, Judas, one of the twelve, offered to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. We learn from Exodus 21:32 that this was the traditional price for a slave. Each gospel writer indicated Jesus knew Judas would betray his master. Yet, on Thursday evening, Jesus celebrated the final Passover with Judas and the other disciples. It was there that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper and gave final words of encouragement to his followers. Even then, Jesus had Judas beside him and showed him incredible grace. During the Passover celebration, Jesus brings up the fact that one who is present will betray him. And I think it was so profound that none of the disciples even knew who it was, and they all questioned, is it themselves? Even after this statement, none of the disciples knew that it was Judas. So Judas took off to complete his evil deed, and he would know from experience that Jesus and the disciples would gather in the Garden of Gethsemane that evening, located on the Mount of Olives. It was there that Jesus prepared himself with three lengthy periods of prayer. They were intense with his heavenly Father. Jesus also urged his disciples to pray as well, but slumber overtook them, and they failed to keep watch and pray with their Lord. As dark as that night was, though, the majesty of Jesus shined brighter than ever before. So with that said, let's turn our attention to our passage and observe five acts today and how this drama unfolds all those years ago. And then we'll take some time at the end and look at four timeless principles that we can apply to our life today. You may want to write them down. So here we are, Mark 14, beginning in verse 43. This is the word of God. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today my prayer is that our heart would overflow with gratitude as we come before you to express our thankfulness for your precious gift, the gift of your word. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, guiding us through the trials and triumphs of life. And I thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself through the pages of Scripture 
In your word, we find the wisdom, truth, and knowledge that we need to navigate the complexities of this world. Your word teaches us to discern between right and wrong, to seek justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you. And we are thankful, Father, for the comfort your word brings to our souls. In times of sorrow and distress, we turn to your promises and find solace. Your word speaks life into our spirit, reminding us of your unfailing love, grace, and forgiveness. It is a refuge, a stronghold, and a source of unwavering hope. Lord, your word is alive and active, piercing through the depths of our hearts, discerning our thoughts and transforming our innermost being. We are grateful for its power to convict, correct, and renew us, making us more like Christ each day. And we praise you for the teachings of Jesus, who is the living word, his parables, his compassion, and his sacrifice on the cross reveal the depths of your love for humanity. Through your word, we come to know the character of Christ, and we are drawn to imitate his humility. Heavenly Father, we now ask that you would do a great work for every heart listening, and may we be not only hearers of the word, but doers as well. And we pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. And the church said, amen. All right, so we have arrived at the first act, and the first act is the crowd. Now we learn more about the crowd in verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, with him a crowd, with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now right before the crowd shows up, Jesus had spent hours of intense prayer, as we mentioned earlier, with his heavenly Father. He also told his disciples to spend time in prayer as well. This scene closes out in verses 41 and 42, and he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, as I shared with you early, earlier, the betrayal was so shocking that each gospel writer stated Judas was one of the twelve. The tragedy of this wasted life is unparalleled in all of Scripture. Judas arrives with a crowd that consisted of a group with swords and clubs. Now, this group included religious leaders and their international, or international, their internal police force who carried clubs. A detachment of Roman soldiers form a cohort stationed at Fort Antonia, and they were presented as well. Now, if you take a look at this picture, this is the actual fort right near the temple grounds. So it would have taken no time at all for Judas to acquire this force. Now, we learn in history that a full cohort would have comprised of 600 to 1,000 soldiers. A smaller group of 200, known as a maniple, would have been also sent out on something as small as this, but they would have never gone out with less than 200. And the Romans carried double-edged swords, and they knew how to use them. According to John 18.3, the crowds also had torches and lanterns as well. Think about it. Nighttime back then must have been very dark. And for you younger boys and girls listening, there was a time when us older boys and girls would be sent out of our homes and told not to come home until the streetlights came home or came on. And so we would play out on the streets and we would have so much fun and we weren't allowed to come home until those streetlights came home. But back then, they must have had a different signal to say it's time to come home to mom and dad. So I just want you to feel what it was like to be a kid back then. They definitely didn't have electricity, so no streetlights, incredibly dark, and they must have had a unique signal plan to identify Jesus. Now, other members of this crowd consisted of various religious leaders, and as a review, Sanhedrins were the liberals, and the Pharisees were the religious conservatives. 
Imagine liberals and conservatives not getting along. A few of you can. All right. There was also a subgroup from the Pharisees called scribes, and they were the law experts. Rarely did they agree on topics, but an overwhelming majority agreed together that Jesus must be eliminated. A good question to ask is, why? They hated Jesus and were jealous of his power and his popularity. For whom from their midst could raise the dead, give sight to the blind, or give hearing to the deaf? Who among them could calm a raging storm or heal disease, make the lame walk, or deliver a person from demons? Of course they were jealous, and this same jealousy blinded them to the very one they'd been praying for to deliver them. Their hate was further inflamed by Jesus' message of salvation by grace. Now, as a little boy, I was taught grace means God's riches at Christ's expense, and certainly they opposed that message. They wanted to earn their way to heaven. They also feared that Jesus' popularity would ignite a revolution that would cause Rome to retaliate and possibly have their positions of privilege removed. They were also bitter at Jesus as he exposed the corruption around the temple for the overcharging of animals of the sacrifice. So by now, it is early Friday, still dark, and things are set in motion for the execution of Jesus. By 3 p.m., he will be dead on the cross. Let's now leave the crowd and turn our attention to the second scene, the betrayer. Verse 44 through 46. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. Now remember what the prophet Isaiah said about Jesus in chapter 53, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. So along with no distinguishing features was the darkness of the garden at night. Judas could have pointed him out and said, there's the man you want, but he didn't. He chose to say, I'm going to give him a kiss. Now, indeed, he did put that signal in place that would hide his betrayal. During the place and time of this first century gathering, a kiss was a sign of respect and affection. It could be given on feet by slaves where inferiors kissed hands, but Judas chose to kiss him on the cheek. This symbolized friendship and mutual affection as equals. One other fact about this greeting that's interesting is that it always is initiated by the rabbi to the student. Judas initiating this kiss would have been out of the ordinary, for he was the student of Jesus. This kiss makes the betrayal even more ugly. And of note, the verb in the Greek indicates one is kissing fervently. So picture the scene of the prodigal son coming back home to his dad. It's that type of kiss. It is one that is over the top with emotion. In a parallel passage found in Luke 22, 47 through 48, we learn, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them, and he drew near Jesus to kiss him. But verse 48, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Clearly, Jesus was not surprised by the act of betrayal. The Lord had predicted it, and Jesus offered no resistance, showed no anger or anxiety. Further, from this point on, Mark never mentions Judas again, but we do learn about his demise from Matthew, chapter 27, verses 3 through 5. 
Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. Before we move on, let's spend a moment addressing betrayal. Most adults have experienced some form of betrayal. One single act can wound a soul for a lifetime. Some have lived through serious betrayal and others less serious. Yet, after listening to many stories, I've come to understand betrayal, regardless of severity, it leaves a wound. The Bible addresses this in Proverbs 27, verse 6. It says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. This is an antithetical proverb, meaning two lines that stand in stark contrast. Wounds from a faithful friend are given in private and for our good. It may hurt, but it's for our good. And again, with the kids present, this may be one of the reasons why your mom pulls you aside before you go out in public and spends a little time embarrassing you by examining you. She might say, smile, and then you have something in your teeth, so she says, go brush your teeth again. Or even a more common problem that children have is they might actually have a booger in their nose, right? So she says, go blow your nose. These are things that are done from a mom who loves you. She cares about you. Now, she may also not want to be embarrassed herself, for you are her child. But the point is, she is giving these little embarrassing wounds because she cares about you. On a more somber note, it could be a friend or spouse saying your habit has now become an addiction. These are faithful wounds meant for our good. Kisses from an enemy, however, are not for our good. Betrayal always follows. And if you find yourself wounded today, please consider going to our website and under resources, click care. And at the bottom of the page, you'll see a place to apply for a Stephen minister. Stephen ministers are one of the greatest resources I can offer to men and women in this church who are going through hard times. These are men and women who are trained to listen and care for you. They have great resources at their disposal, and there's someone that can care for you on a daily basis. Please take us up on that. It's one of the greatest gifts I can give you as your pastor. I also know this. Wounds not tended will fester, and they can lead to your own destruction. So please let the church care for you. All right, we've seen the crowd and the betrayer. Now let's meet the disciple. Verse 47. But one of those who stood by drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Although Mark doesn't state who this disciple is, John's gospel identifies him as Peter. By now, you've been reading through the gospels, you would draw the same conclusion. We also learn from John that the man who lost his ear was called Malchus, a servant of the high priest. Here is a good question to ask the text. What is Peter doing? Was Jesus teaching swordcraft and martial arts on the side? No, that's not what he was doing at all, right? But I do believe Peter has something to prove. Back in verse 29, Peter said, even if all fall away, he will not. Peter was pretty sure of himself. And you might be thinking, wow, that Peter was bold and had a lot of courage. But I want to show you something in John 18 and why Peter may have been so bold. Jesus walks up to the massive crowd and says, whom do you seek? And they responded, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. When Jesus said this, according to John 18, they drew back and fell to the ground. 
No one could touch him. All they could do was fall flat on the ground. That's why Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down myself. Knowing the kingdom of God does not advance by force, Jesus commands his disciples to stop. Then, in an act of mercy, Jesus touched the ear of Malchus and miraculously recreated it. This is the only healing I can find in the New Testament of a fresh wound. How much this last miracle demonstrated by Jesus really shows us how much his wonderful love exists for every man and woman. Now, there's no more scripture to illuminate this next thought, but I often wonder what, what it was like for Malchus after that event. Because clearly he would have been walking around with that new ear. I bet he could hear pretty good with it too. And I bet he had a testimony to share. I'd like to think he's a follower of Christ. Maybe one day we'll know. But those are the ways my brain works sometimes when I read scripture. The Bible does have a few lessons to teach us from Jesus' instruction to Peter, though. One, in Matthew 26, 52, we learn that all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Jesus' point is unlawful killing is a capital offense and punishable by death. If Peter would have killed someone that night, he would have been justly arrested and tried for murder. Then two, Peter should have known if Jesus wanted help, he could have called down 12 legions of angels, according to Matthew 26, verse 53. Now remember, a Roman legion was 6,000 soldiers. And if a single angel killed 185,000 soldiers in one night, according to 2 Kings 19.35, imagine the power behind 72,000 angelic beings. Now, I had the privilege to go through Green Beret training after being a SEAL for several years. And there was a gentleman I met who was going through as a reservist, and he ran the SWAT team for Atlanta. Now, we'll call him Mike because that was his name. And Mike was probably the most dangerous individual I've ever worked with in my entire life. And doing ride-alongs with him and seeing in him in his world, I noticed something. Other officers that maybe were a little shy of a situation, they all of a sudden stood a little taller and a little bigger when Mike showed up. Because Mike could whoop anything on planet Earth, in my opinion. He was one of those few individuals that when you're around, you realize if Mike don't want you to leave the room, you don't leave the room. Like Mike could keep you here. I feel confident he could probably keep most of us in this room. Like he was that type of guy. So now imagine what Peter was experiencing when he saw the Lord Jesus in front of that crowd, 200 soldiers at a minimum with swords. He's like, I'm he. And they fall flat on the ground. Imagine Peter was emboldened after seeing that, like, you know what? I think I'll swing, swing a sword and we'll see what happens because I got the Lord with me. That's just my thought. All right. The third thing that we want to see here is that Peter needed to understand his defense ran against Old Testament prophecy. God's word said all of this would happen. Okay. Seen the crowd, the betrayer, and the disciple. Now let's observe the Savior. Verses 48 and 49. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. Are you able to picture the calmness that Jesus brings to this chaotic scene? Jesus asked a reasonable question that puts all of them on report. Did you really come out here with such a force to arrest me? Jesus reminds them that he's been in and out of the area each and every day. And if he was as dangerous as they pretended, why had they not arrested him earlier? 
We know from earlier passages that they were fearful of how the crowds would respond and that they might turn against them if they arrested Jesus. We also know all these events took place to fulfill Scripture. Everything was running on God's timetable. Consider Zechariah 13, in the latter half of verse 7. It says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus knew the reason each of them were there in the middle of the night on a Friday is to fulfill Scripture. Even in their anger, they were putting God's plan into motion and keeping it on schedule. Jesus will soon die at 3 p.m., the same time the Passover lambs are slaughtered. The Savior, Jesus Christ, is the true Passover lamb. Stated in John 10, Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Even as Jesus heads to his death, everything was under his control. This brings us to our final scene, the followers, verses 50 through 52. And they all left him and fled, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. What a scene. Every follower of Christ has fled. Just a few hours earlier, Jesus, God in the flesh, washed the feet of his disciples and demonstrated to them the perfect picture of a servant leader. Now, those same followers have run off into the darkness, abandoning their Lord. Mark closes this scene with a young man who escapes capture, but only by leaving his bedsheet behind. And after reading numerous commentaries, I'm convinced that it's not important who the young man is. Scripture doesn't give us any more information, so filling in the gaps is only speculation. So what is the point? The point is Jesus is alone. Everybody's gone, and we're to feel the weight of the total isolation Jesus experienced. We need to remember that Jesus made no attempt to escape as well. Jesus, in his capture, moved toward the cross with confidence. Jesus went to the cross willingly for you and for me. Now, if you're exploring Christianity and you're here today, I have some of the best news in the world to tell you. The Bible makes it very clear that God has created each one of us to be with him. He desires to have a relationship with it, each one of us. Think about it. The creator of the universe he wants to know you. He wants to have a relationship with you. But if you're like me, you're also very aware that you have a sin nature. Every one of us have a sin problem, and we cannot get rid of it on our own. Matter of fact, the Bible says even your very best deeds, you could give all your money and time to the poor and do numerous other things, and they are like filthy rags to a holy God, according to Isaiah 64. So what are we to do? Well, on our own, we can do nothing. That's why God sent Jesus. That's why Jesus is in this garden. That's why he doesn't hesitate when it's time to go to the cross on your behalf and mine. And he dies. But then God, three days later, raised him from the dead to show he has power over the grave. And the best news of all, and I will never tire of sharing it with anybody who will listen, is that everyone who places their faith and trust in what Jesus Christ has done for them can have eternal life, and it can begin today. Now, that is the reason I have hope. And that's the reason why a lot of you have hope today. And I pray that if you're exploring Christianity, today would be the day of salvation for you. There's much we can learn about this passage, but for time's sake, I've just put down four timeless principles that I think we could all apply to our lives. You may want to jot them down. 
The first one is this. Association with godliness doesn't guarantee godliness. Look no further than Judas, for our example. Now, when I was growing up, sometimes we were taught to ask people if they're a Christian. And a lot of times the response would be, well, sure, I go to church. But I want to let you know that if that would be your answer today, that is a lot like saying if you think going to church makes you a Christian, then standing in a garage makes you a car. Right? It has nothing to do with it. It is all about a relationship. Jesus Christ wants to know you and have a relationship with you. I also don't want you to use this timeless principle as an excuse not to go to church or be involved with godly people. Rather, realize that you need to have a relationship with Christ. So for you boys and girls that have parents that are following the Lord, realize that is wonderful. But at some point, you have to make your own decision to follow the Lord. You have to place your faith and trust in Christ. I had some wonderful role models in my grandparents, my mother, and certainly they were living for the Lord, but I had to make a decision on my own at a certain point and realize I'm a sinner and I need God to save me. That's when my relationship started with the Lord. And so I don't want you to be misinformed on that fact. But also realize this, we have something called church groups. If you're not in a church group, you're missing out. It's a wonderful place where you can have fellowship. You go to our website under Connect and you pick a church group near your location. Get plugged in with other believers and do this thing called life together. It's so wonderful during the week to be encouraged by other believers. Second thing I want to share with you is moral corruption in secret is deadly. Moral corruption in secret is deadly. Now, one of my specialties in the military was medicine. There's nothing more deadly than undetected cancer. And I know a lot of you know that from experience. Now, cancer, if you identify it early, is quite treatable. But if it's undetected, it kills. Likewise, I also sat in the emergency room and in the OR debriding gunshot wounds. And the surgeons would emphasize, as you cut away dead tissue, you have to cut away all of it. If you leave the smallest piece of dead tissue behind, that little piece of tissue will kill the host. It will kill the person. It's very serious. And when I think about cancer and I think about these gunshot wounds and possibly leaving behind just a little bit of dead tissue, it makes me think of this suitcase that I keep in my office. If you've ever been in my office, you'll realize it's like a giant Tot Tot museum. I have stuff everywhere. But this suitcase is a painful reminder for each and every one of us. You see, this suitcase is a lot like each one of you and me going to the Lord in prayer. Now, we go to the Lord and we confess our sin, right? We have this big suitcase of guilt. We have a big suitcase of shame. We lay it at the foot of the cross. We confess our sin and we learn from 1 John 1, 9 that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin, right? And to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. I love that little word, all. You don't have to do a Greek word study to figure that one out, right? It means all. And yet, experience in my own life and experience listening to a lot of you is this is what we do after that confession time. We confess it, we believe it, sort of. Then we pick that same suitcase up of guilt and shame, and what do we do? We take it right back home with us, don't we? Take it right back, and we let it plague us because the devil doesn't want you to live understanding that you were forgiven and that we have a God who can forget 
all that guilt and shame. My encouragement to you is if you're a follower of Christ, listen to this truth. You are never more justified in the eyes of God than the day you placed your faith and trust in him. For the rest of your life, you'll never be more justified. That is a one and done transaction. A lot of us need to hear the gospel each and every day that follow the Lord. It's not for just that day when you get saved. We need it each and every day. That's good news, people. Only our stubborn pride will keep us from bringing our sin to God. Experience has also taught me that the most miserable person on earth is not an unsaved individual. The most miserable person on earth is a saved individual who's out of fellowship with a loving God. And may I lovingly remind you that if you feel far away from God today, it's you that moved. Time to come back home. That leads us to our last principle. Actually, the third. Getting ahead of myself. God is in control of his world, and human opposition is futile. Now, I've shared with you before how much the book Crazy Love by Francis Chan has impacted my life. I still, just because it's ingrained in my memory, reading it behind those sandbags in Afghanistan, it was one of the biggest takeaways I've ever taken away from a book. He highlights the life of believers, and he says, each and every one of us are in this epic movie about God. And your role and my role is to walk on a sidewalk in the background for 0.3 seconds. My takeaway was get over yourself. A lot of us need to hear that. Sometimes I think we might actually imagine we're the epicenter on planet Earth and everything revolves around us. But that's not what God's Word teaches us. It's a good truth to understand. The Bible is for us, but it's not about us. From Genesis to Revelation, it is the story of God's redemptive plan. We need to heed Scripture's warning also. On our own, there's no way we can live out godliness or avoid moral corruption. You can't do it. But guess what? There's one who did, and his name is Jesus Christ. That is why I have hope, and again, that's why many of you have hope today as well. That leads us to our fourth and final principle. Jesus understands your pain and loneliness. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16, I asked my buddy Keith to read this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus was betrayed by those who were closest to him. Don't believe the lie that's whispered in your ear that you're alone and that nobody could ever understand your pain. It's simply not true. Jesus understands all your hurt. You're to take it to the Lord in prayer. I love how C.S. Lewis expounds upon this. He says, God allows us to experience the low points in life in order to teach us lessons that we could learn no other way. Then Charles Spurgeon continues this thought by saying, the suffering that you have now is just the black velvet upon which the diamond of God's glory is going to be revealed. Let me share a story in closing. A man left his village one morning to take a journey to a lake where he would gather food for his family. To follow the path to the lake would require a 10-mile journey down the side of one mountain, across a valley, then up the other side of a mountain. The journey was particularly long because the path included switchbacks to help hikers uh, traverse the steep mountain grades. Wanting a shorter journey, the man decided to hike straight across to the lake, bypassing the path and the switchbacks, believing that this would cut his hiking time in half. 
Unfortunately, not taking the trail significantly increased his time as he hiked through deep thickets and was forced to climb rocks and wade across streams. Although the actual distance hiked was shorter, the shortcut was also dangerous and difficult. Which path was better? God has given us a path to walk in our lives, each and every one of us. And he has a plan for each of us and this world that he's created. Although at times it might seem, from our limited perspective, that there is a better way, we must learn to trust God more than we do our own perspective. Where might you be cutting corners today? Where might you be walking away from God's plan, his path, because you think you have a better way than God? The first Adam failed to follow God's path in the garden, and as a result, sin entered the picture. All the pain and suffering we go through today is from that failure. Jesus is the true and better Adam, who passed the test in the garden. He went to the cross and he took sin upon himself so that we could have hope, so that we could spend eternity with him. I love how Jesus reminds us in John 14, 6 also, and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. I've got a couple questions I'd like you to reflect in our prayer time today, and then I'll close us in prayer. The first one is, Ask God to search your heart and confess any secret sins you might be hiding. Along with confessing them, ask God for the strength to forsake them. And then finally, ask God to help you surrender your pain, your fear, anxiety, and future to Him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Heavenly Father, as my brothers and sisters pray to you, I thank you for this text. It certainly has challenged my heart, and I pray it has challenged others as well. And in this moment of prayer, we come humbly before you, seeking peace for our troubled hearts. Lord, we acknowledge that we are burdened by pain, fear, and anxiety that seem to weigh us down and control our every thought and action. Yet we know that you are the ultimate source of comfort and strength and we trust in your boundless love and mercy. We surrender our pain to you, dear Lord. The wounds we carry may run deep, but we know that your healing touch can mend even the most broken parts of our soul. Help us release that hurt that has been dwelling within us, replacing it with your divine grace and understanding. We give you our fear, O oh Lord. Fear of the unknown, fear of failure, and fear of loss have held us back from fully embracing your divine plan for our lives. 
We ask for your courage and the assurance that you are always with us, guiding and protecting us through every challenge and storm. And Father, I know anxiety fills our hearts often, and we are overwhelmed by the constant worry about the future. But we choose to place our trust in you, knowing that you hold the entire world in your hands. We pray for the ability to cast our anxieties upon you, believing that you will sustain us and never let us fall. We surrender our future into your loving care, O oh Lord, and we acknowledge that your plans for us are far greater than anything we could ever imagine. Help us to let go of our desire for control and instead embrace your path, the path that you have set before us. And in moments of weakness, remind us that you are a refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Teach us to find peace in your presence, for in you there is no fear or anxiety, only love and tranquility. And may your Holy Spirit guide us as we learn to surrender our pain, fear, and anxiety and future to you. Grant us the strength to persevere in faith, knowing that your perfect love casts out all fear. We long to live a life that glorifies you, trusting in your grace and finding comfort in your everlasting arms. We pray all of this in the mighty name of Jesus, who taught us to pray and trust in your unfailing love. And the church said, Amen.